0: Eric Liu is a civics educator with a mission. You want to know what his mission is? To make civics sexy again. Yes, he's bringing sexy back to the realm of civics. And now the way he's doing this isn't by uh, covering civics in Axe Body Spray, uh, but explicitly making civics about the teaching of power, because civics is about power. The problem, according to Lou, is that far too many people, though, are illiterate when it comes to terms of power. What it is, how power operates, and why some people have it and other people don't. Now, I actually like the way Lou defines power. I find it helpful. It's a definition we're going to use this morning. He defines power as the capacity to make others do what you would have them do. Power is the capacity to make other people do what you would have them do. And if we're illiterate in power, this truly is a problem because we don't just live in a world of power, but a world of powers. There's not just one power at play, but many powers at play. You know, most conflicts, they're usually about power. You know, this is why people get into power struggles over parking spots or who gets to use the bathroom first. This is why politicians campaign against one another. This is why nations war. You know, the many different powers want more and more power, they want more and more say. And so conflict occurs. Now, we might not be illiterate in power. We might be. You know, we have a sense of how power works at society in large. But most people are not just illiterate when it comes to power, but illiterate to the invisible powers in the world, to the unseen powers, to the powers in the spiritual realm that scripture often attests to. Our culture has no language for this, let alone any interest. We would call it myth. On the other hand, the people who lived in the time of Jesus, who ate and breathed the same food and air, uh, people who walked alongside him, they had a much better sense of power. They understood political power because Rome made sure they understood political power. It was oppressive. Yet they also had a better sense of spiritual powers at play too. They understood that there was always powers behind the scenes, pulling the strings, manipulating, and making things work their way. And so as we're only moments away from the crucifixion in Mark's gospel, all of the powers, both visible and invisible, find their place on center stage. And there's this flurry of conflict, and the powers, they collide. They strong-arm one another. They manipulate one another until they find harmony in the shouts of, crucify him. So it's of the utmost importance that we educate ourselves in the realm of power both visible and invisible because often the powers are oppressive they will exert themselves over us manipulatively and sometimes even coercively through violence and so the great hope though the confidence that we have in facing the many powers in the world is the big idea in this in the passage this morning jesus silently triumphs over this public spectacle of power to set us free from the powers. Jesus silently triumphs over this public spectacle of power to set us free from the powers. So if you have a Bible, open it up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. If you don't have one, don't worry about it. Everything you'll need will be on the screen, starting in Mark 15, uh, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you've said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed." Let's situate ourselves very briefly. In our passage last week, Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, the highest court in Judaism. And these leaders, they had met in secret. It involved the high priests, uh, the chief priests, elders and scribes, the council, and they all condemned Jesus of deserving of death on the charge of blasphemy. Jesus claimed to be God. But since Jerusalem is under Roman occupation, they find themselves in a predicament. They don't actually have the authority to execute anyone. And so now they need to work with the Roman authorities, or more specifically with the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, to have Jesus killed. And Pilate and the Sanhedrin here, they're very odd bedfellows. The two don't belong together. The first century Jewish historian, Josephus, reports that the political situation for Pilate was unstable because of ongoing clashes with the Jews. Pilate repeatedly caused riots and near insurrections among the Jews because he was always insensitive to their customs, so much so that once he violated a custom of the Jews, that they marched 30 miles to his palace and protested outside of his doors for five days. Another first century Jewish historian, Philo, describes Pilate's vindictiveness and furious temper. He writes that he was naturally inflexible, uh, much like me, but I don't think he means it in the same way, Uh, a blend of self-will and relentlessness. He writes of Pilate's corruption, his acts of insolence, his habit of continually insulting people, his cruelty and murdering of people untried, and his never-ending, gratuitous, and most grievous inhumanity. So here... In the Gospel of Mark, we have the Sanhedrin who's supposed to represent the highest religious purity and faith, manipulating their own laws, acting in a gross miscarriage of justice, and now conspiring with the unruly and disorderly and corrupt Pilate. The political powers are definitely out to play in this text. If it happened today, it would involve politicians and lawyers, esteemed judges. This would take place on a provincial level, you know, cameras would be flashing, red lights blinking. It'd all be recorded as the media take their seats for the public record. And we're reading an account of this public record. You know, what's happening here in Mark is a public event, a political event, a judicial event, and it's one full of tension. Pilate, he agrees to interrogate Jesus. And what's interesting is the interrogation parallels what happened in the Sanhedrin just in the reverse order. You'll remember last week that they brought false witnesses against Jesus, but he was silent. But he was only silent until they said, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? And he said, you've said so. Yes, I am. But now, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you've said so. He says, well, what about all these charges? And Jesus resumes a posture of silence. Silence. And he'll keep this posture of silence until his last moments on the cross. Tucked away in this exchange, this interrogation, and everything that's going on, is some very sneaky political maneuvering by the Sanhedrin. If they had come to Pilate presenting their real reason for wanting to kill Jesus, he claimed to be God, why would Pilate care? That's no reason to execute anyone. So, Luke's gospel actually gives us a bit more of what the Sanhedrin's doing here. Luke writes, they began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he's the Christ, the king. Now there's, you know, two truths and a lie. You know, Jesus, he has claimed to be king. You know, according to his teachings, uh, interpreted falsely, he is misleading the nation, so to speak, because he's trying to move them away from corruption. From the corrupt people, that's misleading. But Jesus did not say, keep your taxes from Caesar. We read in Mark's gospel, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The false witnesses are still at play here. But the thing is, if it's true, this is a huge no-no in the Roman Empire. Jesus is claiming to be king, which is a challenge against Caesar's reign. Jesus is saying withhold money, which is a huge problem in Rome. And that if this is true, it could lead to an uprising and it needs to be squashed. Pilate would actually have just reason to execute Jesus. It's a smart political move by the Sanhedrin. It looks like an act of good faith. Hey, Pilate, we found one of our own, who is going to cause some problems, so we're going to hand him over. See, look, we're willing to play by the rules, Pilate. But it's a power play. It's a power play. Remember Lou's definition of power. It is the capacity to make others do what you want them to do. The Sanhedrin, they just want Pilate to kill Jesus And so they present a case that isn't true, but the case that they think will convince Pilate to move forward with the plans to kill Jesus. So Mark continues in verse six. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. When George Washington was six years old, uh, he still had the face of an old man, but uh, he received a hatchet from his father, and he Damaged his father's cherry tree. And his father discovered what he had done and confr- confronted little old man George Washington. And George Washington bravely and now famously said, I cannot tell a lie. And he continued, I did cut it with my hatchet. And the story goes on that Washington's father embraced him and rejoiced that his son's honesty was worth more than a thousand trees. The great irony is that this story is a complete fabrication of Washington's biographer. It never happened. Mark starts this scene with now the feast Pilate used, now the feast Pilate used to release for them one prisoner. Thing is, outside of the Gospels, we have no account of this practice with Pilate. And we have a decent amount of writings from Pilate about Pilate. And given the portrait that we have of Pilate as a cruel and somewhat unpredictable, um, harsh man prone to murder. Is this in line with his character, or is this just a fabrication? Is this a lie? Is some accusative being? But we have good reason to say no. This isn't a lie. This isn't a fabrication. We have four different accounts of this event. Every single gospel records this event. The gospels, you have to understand, are immensely concerned with history, they're immensely concerned with how God has revealed himself within space and time, within the person of Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel gives us details like locations and names. If this didn't happen, this gospel was written close enough to Pilate's life that people could have asked, did Pilate do this? This was verifiable information and yet we have nothing from history questioning the gospels on this account. It's just a modern uh, fixation. Remember, too, that Pilate, he had ongoing issues with the Jews. But history shows this began to get him into a heap of trouble with his superiors. So it would be politically advantageous for Pilate to start accommodating a little more, like respecting some of the Jewish practices, like the Passover, releasing a prisoner every now and then. It's a good political move. So we read in verse eight, the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And suddenly he has a golden ticket to get out of this strange opportunity. Verse nine, he says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? You know, Pilate, he's not stupid. He's shrewd. He knows the charges brought to him are a farce. Uh, Mark accounts, he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up to him to Pilate's surprise, we read in verse 11, the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Barabbas? Really? This must have completely taken Pilate by surprise. As Mark has already noted, Barabbas was an infamous uh, prisoner. He was notorious, revolutionary, and insurrectionist. Uh, He was involved in instigating a riot against Rome. He had murdered someone or several people in the process. His guilt was undeniable. This was the sort of person who belonged belonged in prison. He needed to be locked away. But now the crowd calls out for Barabbas. This puts Pilate in a double bind. If he doesn't release Barabbas and releases Jesus instead, he can already see the heatedness of the crowd. He can see the chief priests. They could stir up a riot. It could be an immediate problem. But if he keeps Jesus and releases Barabbas, he's putting a non-revolutionary back on the street. And in the future, he could stir up another riot. He's in a double bind. Mark continues in verses 12 through 14. Pilate again said to them, trying to reason with them. Then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And I don't think he expected this response. They cried out again, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, crucify him. You see, all the gospels account that Pilate saw no guilt in Jesus worthy of crucifixion. Matthew records in his gospel that uh, Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing with the crowd and actually that a riot was beginning to happen, that people were on the edge of insurrection. And so he chose to release Barabbas to squash the immediate risk because that was better than a potential risk in the future. In Pilate, he condemns Jesus to death. Mark concludes in verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. It's, it's official. You know, with the same pomp and show as signing an executive order, Pilate condemns Jesus to death. And the Sanhedrin, they've, they've succeeded. But they've only succeeded in fulfilling Jesus' parable in chapter 14, do you remember? The parable of the vineyard beloved son, the people trying to rob the vineyard say, come, let us kill the air, let us kill the sun. But we would be foolish to think that the only powers at play on this stage are that of political powers. Even Pilate can see that there's more going on here. Look at verse 10 once again. Pilate could see that envy was driving these leaders against Jesus. And Mark, he's showing us much, much more. You know, these leaders... They're seduced by political and religious power and the benefits that come with it. They like the status quo, and Jesus disrupts that for them. And because they love the power they have, they're willing to lie, they're willing to deceive, they're willing to truncate procedures and miscarry justice, all because they hate Jesus. They're willing to commit murder. Now, we can call this corrupt human powers or perverted human powers. There's a better word for it. This is just the power of sin. Is just the power of sin. But sin isn't the only power at play here. There's the invisible, perverted, supernatural powers at play too the demonic powers. You might be saying, well, where? There's no demons mentioned in this passage. Do you hear the cries? Verse 13, they cried out, crucify him. Verse 14, they shouted all the more. Crucify him. In the Greek, it's the same word. The the translators just change it for reading pleasure. And this word in Mark's gospel is used very specifically. It's often associated with the demons who cry out through their subjects. Consider Mark 1.26. The unclean spirit convulsed the man, crying out with a loud voice. Mark 3.11. Whenever unclean spirits saw Jesus, they cried out with a loud voice, you are the son of God. The demon-possessed man in Mark 5 was always crying out and cutting himself. And the the boy who is possessed with a demon since birth, the demon cried out as Christ exercised him out of the boy. Finally, do you hear them crying out, crucify him? Undeniably, the power of Satan is at work in this scene. His legion of demons are playing. They're pulling the strings. You know, the people orchestrating this death of Christ, they're not just persuaded by their lust for power or by the power of sin, but also by demonic powers. They might not be flat out possessed, but you can rest assured, which I don't think is very restful, but you can be certainly convinced that they were influenced by these powers. But then there's the power of violence. Pilate sentences Jesus and he hands him over for scourging. Thankfully, we don't understand the horror of this, but Mark's Mark's readers certainly did, and Jesus, our Lord, knows it himself. Scourging was a prelude to crucifixion. The prisoner was stripped uh, and bound naked to a post and beaten with a leather whip woven with bits of bone and metal. And there was no maximum amount of strokes prescribed. And the scourging, it would lacerate and strip the flesh, and often exposed bones and muscles and innards. And it was so brutal that many prisoners died before even making it to the cross. Horrendous violence like this is not a power in and of itself. It is an expression of the power of death. The power of death is often leveraged by those in power to maintain their power. And here we see the power of death beginning to sink its teeth into our Savior's body. So there's many powers on stage from all human brokenness and rebellion against God and supernatural forces set against God. Everyone is coercing and trying to get Christ to do what they want. They work together to kill him and to end his power. But before Christ is is handed over to this horrific event, he stands silently. He stands silently. He's aware of all these powers on the stage. He's aware of all the conflict and the manipulating, their ugliness and their horror. He's aware of how these powers can dehumanize us, expressing itself in sin and hatred and violence. He's known all these powers since the fall. And yet, Jesus also sees Barabbas. He sees Barabbas. We shouldn't be mistaken. Barabbas didn't just want to destroy things. He wanted to replace things. He wasn't an anarchist. He was an insurrectionist. He wanted to reestablish the nation of Israel's power. He wanted to overthrow Rome's power. But to do so, Barabbas used his own personal power to murder someone. He used the power of violence, which we've already said is the power of death, to establish what, though? Well, in his mind, a better kingdom, a better rule, salvation for the people of Israel. But at what cost to himself? In the battles for power, Barabbas comes up empty-handed. The pursuit of power made him into a murderer. And ultimately, he was stripped of any power. He's imprisoned and likely sentenced to death. As Lord Acton observed in the 19th century, power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. We see this in Barabbas. And it's recently been observed in a scientific study conducted by this uh, professor at the University of Lausanne. Researchers gave real power to individuals with uh, real situations and real uh, stakes on the line. And they observed that even the most honest leaders with the best character at the beginning, the more power you gave them, with certainty they began to act corruptly in decision-making. They observed that power corrupts. There was only one other factor that would decide if a leader was corrupted besides power. Do you want to know what it was? No? Okay, let's move on. (laughs) Testosterone. That was the other factor. Ladies, can I get an amen? Like Barabbas, even if we're aspiring for worthy causes, we can be seduced by power along the way. Now, the activists among us, and I know there's many of us, we want to seek revolution, we want to seek justice, and we do so with good intentions. And we might not murder anybody. I hope you're not. We might commit to the way of nonviolence like Christ, but do we restrain ourselves from slander? Do we restrain ourselves from insulting our opponents or the pride that comes with thinking that you're on the right side? Are those who are politically active among us? You know, do we fall into making empty promises, campaigning based on fear, but justifying it for the sake of the cause? We're on a much simpler level, as Lou says. Sometimes we use power just to get people to do what we want, How does this play out in your life in simple things like decision-making? You know, the movie you want to see, do you pull the strings? You know, the place you want to eat, cleaning the way you like. I could go on and on. But over time, these subtle power plays, they can deteriorate friendships and they can deteriorate marriages. Any use of power, unchecked, can corrupt us. And as we see, the pursuit of power corrupted Barabbas. And Jesus silently watches Barabbas. And the murderer, he set free. And Jesus takes his place. And Pilate and the leaders, they might think they've worked out some kind of deal. But God is the one orchestrating the scene. As we read last week, it's all unfolding as it was written. And Jesus knows what is really happening here. A ransom is being paid. Jesus said that the reason he came in Mark 10.45 is, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. This is just the first picture of it. The release of Barabbas is the first of many upheavals. The imprisoned set free, debts paid, lives exchanged. Jesus sees Barabbas. Plato talked about a cave, but he also famously said, the measure of a man is what he does with his power. The measure of a person is what he or she does with his or her power. We've already considered Barabbas, but what about the Jewish leaders who are conspiring and, and, and colluding? What about the crowd? What about Pilate? They're all caught up in this power play. They're vying for gain, manipulating, pushing for their way to rule, but what do they achieve? Darkness, scourging, crucifixion and death, that's their measure. Now, Jesus, he might appear powerless, but he's not. Remember last week, he just declared that he's the one with all authority. He's just declared that he is the God of all creation, of the cosmos, of time and space, of all that is seen and unseen. He's declared, as we saw last week, that he is the judge of the living and the dead. And we've seen throughout the gospel that when he speaks a word, it happens. He speaks and demons are cast out. They flee. He speaks and sickness evaporates. He speaks and a storm is settled. He speaks and a dead girl is raised to life. He has unfathomably more power than all the powers in this scene. But if he has all this power, why, Lord, do you remain silent? What does that say about his measure? Jesus may be silent here, but it's only because the weakness of God is stronger than men. Yes, he's silent. He's arrested, condemned. He'll be handed over to be scourged and crucified. But as I've said, it's all unfolding according to the will of God. And as Jesus is handed over, Barabbas is set free, and it's just a foreshadowing of what Jesus will accomplish on the cross. Our first reading this morning was from Colossians, and I want to turn to what Paul wrote once again. When you were dead in your sins, so the power of sin alone makes you dead. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, he's nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus, he uses his immense power to save and free others, even at great cost to himself. That's his measure. That's the measure of the man. That's the measure of our God. His love for the world is so great that he would suffer even the most horrendous fate to triumph for us. And Jesus knows, he knows that we still live in a world of competing powers, of powers that are constantly oppressing and vying for more and more power. And we may have personally experienced how we can abuse our own power. We may have experienced how people abuse power over us. And I suspect that most people, if not everyone in this room, knows the power of sin in your life. Whether others know about it or whether it's a secret, that area of your life that you think that you'll be able to fix on your own. And so you don't bring it up. But you can't fix it. The thing or the person that you know you shouldn't keep returning to, but you keep returning. The ways of acting that you're ashamed of, but can't seem to control or stop. We know what it's like to be oppressed by the power of sin or even the oppressive power of death, and we watch death all around us and we feel afraid. But because of the cross, because of Christ's great love for us, it doesn't matter whether it's cultural powers at play or political powers, the power of temptation and sin, or even supernatural powers. They may beat their chest at us. At times, they may appear to crush us. They may legitimately cause us harm, but they're powerless before our Lord. They have been disarmed. They may taunt us, but our debts have been paid. They may try to condemn us, but they can't because our sins are forgiven. They may harm us, but by our Lord's wounds, we are healed. They may even kill us, but the good news of the gospel is that death has been defeated. Do you see that through the cross, Jesus triumphs over the powers that wreak havoc over our lives? And so when Paul's writing, he's practically shouting, Jesus has made a public spectacle of these powers. And it's a public spectacle because all of these powers have colluded to crucify Christ, and it's their own undoing. And Mark, he wants us to ask, who's really in control here? Who really has power? Well, it's not as it appears. Jesus is the one with power in this scene. He may be silent, but it's, he sees Barabbas. He loves Barabbas. He sees those who are shouting crucify him. He loves them too. He sees Pilate, he sees the leaders, and he sees the cross before him and he goes silently because he knows it will disarm the powers that are afflicting all of his people. He sees you, he sees me, and he loves us too, and he chooses the scourging and the cross. Remember, at a word, just by speaking it, Jesus could have called down judgment. He could have called down fire to evaporate those who are lying and deceiving and trying to kill the Son of God. But instead, he surrenders to their games, to the sin, to the violence, to the evil, and even death. He gives himself to the cross because he knows it is through the cross that all of these powers will be disarmed. And it's because Jesus knows the real definition of power. He shows us his power. Lou said, it's not, you know, the power is the capacity to make others do as you would have them do. Yes, this is a great definition when we're considering the powers of the world but Christ shows us the power of God. His power is serving rather than being served, doing for others what they cannot do for themselves. His power is dismantling powers that we could never dismantle ourselves. His power is doing what we could never accomplish on the cross, paying our sins, having them forgiven, setting us free. You see, Jesus, he uses his immense power to serve us, to give his life as a ransom, to disarm these powers that separate us from his love so that we can enter freely into the kingdom of God. The powers have been disarmed. We might struggle between now and eternity, but the powers will ultimately be defeated on the day that Christ comes in judgment. And Yes, we live in between the times and we live with the tension of powers that can seem to wreak, havoc on our lives, but the good news of the gospel is that they are disarmed. The worst they can do is kill you, and Christ will raise you from the dead. Like Barabbas, Jesus sees you. He was ransomed for you. What will you cry out to? him? Well, it's often the demonic who cry out in Mark's gospel. There's a few other moments that are worthy of notice. The father whose son was demon-possessed since birth cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe that's the cry of your heart today. Maybe you want to believe what we're seeing here in the gospel, but you're wrestling. Cry out to the Lord, it's enough. Then there's Barabbas, the blind beggar who was healed. He cried out, son of David, have mercy on me. Because maybe you are struggling with the powers. They feel not like they're disarmed, but like they rule over you and you can cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, these two people in the gospels, they knew their powerlessness before Christ. And in crying out, Christ answers their pleas. There's only gonna be one more cry in the gospel. It'll come from Jesus himself on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus made this cry to dismantle the powers that would separate us from God, God shows mercy to our cries and grants us eternal life in his kingdom. Will you cry out to Christ? It's the question of this text. And that's the question I'll leave you with.